Well, this is the year of Revelation. Next week, I'm planning to begin a 44-week series on the book of Revelation that will take us all the way through the year. But I don't want to start the series on New Year's Day because so many people will be out of town. And uh, so I am this morning going to preach on John 9, 1-5. My sermon's entitled, Invisible People. We'll start the series next week. I preached this sermon this morning with hesitation and a little embarrassment. Because there are a number of folks in this congregation who are much more equipped and qualified to talk about this subject than I am. And some who put me to shame when it comes to seeing invisible people. It is for me a great privilege to know people who are Christ-like in this way and to see Christ in them. And I pray that God would help me to become more like them. The story we're going to look at this morning is actually 41 verses long. It takes up the entire chapter of John 9. That's too long for us to dive into, even to read. But really the thing I want to focus on is in the first two verses of the story of, in John 9. So we're going to read the first five verses and focus on the first two. John 9, 1-5 As he passed by, that is, <clears throat> as Jesus passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Excuse me. In case anyone here is unfamiliar with the way that this story continues Jesus heals the man by putting mud on his eyes and telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and then the healing of the blind man causes quite a stir and that's the rest of the chapter but there's something very strange going on here in these first two verses something seemingly designed make us stop and wonder what's going on. It says that as he passed by, he saw, Jesus saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he's been born blind. It would make more sense 
if it said, as they passed by, the disciples saw a blind man and then asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But that's not what it says. In the text, it was Jesus who saw and the disciples who asked. We're left wondering why this is. What about Jesus' seeing of this man provoked the disciples to ask a question about him? Remember, this is the Gospel of John. This is John's eyewitness account of what he experienced. He chose to write that Jesus saw the blind man and then the disciples asked the question. So how do you think that John knew that Jesus saw the blind man? Well, how do we usually know if someone we're walking with, say, down the street, if, he see, if the person we're walking with sees something? Usually it's because they react in some way or say something about what they've seen. But it's hard to, for us especially when we're walking side by side, to see where the other person's eyes are going and to really know what they're seeing and what they're not seeing because there's so many things that we can see or fail to see. But it is possible for someone to make it very obvious that he sees something without saying anything at all, isn't it? We've all seen the prank where someone stands there and looks up at the sky like this and pretty soon everybody's going up and looking at the sky. He has drawn attention by what he's doing to the sky and everyone else looks up. Or, you know, if you, if uh, we came in and Kurt was, was down here like this looking at the floor, you know, my first reaction would be, what's down there? because he's drawing attention. And I think that is safe to say that what's going on here is that Jesus looked at the man in such a way that he was drawing attention to the man and that's why the disciples asked him the question. One of the noteworthy things about the gospel accounts of Jesus is that he looks a lot. Over 40 times in the Gospels, we read that Jesus looked at someone or saw someone. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone were to record the, the uh, story of three years of my life, I'm not sure that they would include 40 times in, in, you know, just 50 chapters or so of material, I'm not sure that they would include 40 times of me looking at something. But that's what we find here about Jesus. I think there's a reason for this. I think a point is being made here about Jesus. Looking involves attention and interest, engagement, I'm ashamed to say that sometimes I'm around people, but I act like they're not even there. Not so Jesus. Jesus saw people. He really saw people.
Now certainly a person can look and not love. But we know from the pattern of Christ's life and from the rest of this particular story in John 9 that Jesus' looking involved love and openness and compassion and other-centeredness. Think about the disciples, on the other hand. What attitudes did they show toward this blind man? Well, first of all, they talked about the man as if he weren't right there in front of them, as if he couldn't hear them, just because he was blind. They offered him no help, no hope, not even treating him like a fellow human being. They didn't seem to be concerned about him as a person. They were only interested in the theological puzzle that his blindness raised. Not only this, but they sort of judge him and his parents as having sinned enough to deserve this, implying without saying it that they, the disciples, were not blind because they're not that sinful. Jesus, on the other hand, saw the man. Jesus saw the man as a person. Jesus cared about the man. Jesus met the man where he was and helped the man. At the end of the story, the man is bearing a pretty powerful witness for Christ. He's bold, he's clever, he's even a bit feisty in his interactions with the Jewish authorities. Read the story, it's actually a little bit comical. He impacts his family, he impacts the others who knew him before he was blind, when he was blind, he even impacts the Jewish leaders. Others saw him as worthless, like the disciples. But Jesus turned him into something valuable and worthwhile. It reminds me of an old poem that I've loved for a long time, but uh, was so overused in the 70s and 80s that you never hear it anymore. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Welch. It's about a, uh, an, an auctioning off an old violin. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me? "'A dollar once, a dollar twice, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going and gone, but no.' From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music stopped and the auctioneer, in a voice that was quiet and low, said, 
What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. And who'll make it two? Two thousand. And who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with a life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice, going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the, fool, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I, uh, I've always loved that poem, I'm sure partly because I see myself in it. Jesus saw people who were invisible to others. And the reason he saw them is because he looked. And the reason he looked is because he cared. The first part of this is that there are invisible people. Just as this man was blind to those around him, so people like the disciples were blind to him. And today, people are just as blind to invisible people as the disciples were in this story. Why? Well, because we perceive them as having nothing to offer us. We perceive them as adding nothing to our lives. No wealth, no status, no help, no interesting information. We perceive them as a potential burden on our time or money, a potential hassle, a potential bore. We subtly protect ourselves from that which is awkward or disturbing. We protect ourselves from that which might require something of us. A couple months ago I attended my wife's 50th high school reunion with her and it was in a room that was pretty crowded because there were round tables surrounded by chairs and it wasn't easy to walk your way through the room uh, because there wasn't an open space where people could stand. And of course that's what everyone wanted to do, they wanted to walk around and see everybody and chat with each other. So like everyone else, we planted our stuff on a table and went about mingling and meeting people. There were actually a number of people there that I knew from various places. But it didn't take me long to meet and greet them and run out of things to do. But, of course, Marianne was still catching up with old friends and she had a week's worth of socializing that she could have done that evening. So when I came back to our table and sat down, 
there was a woman at our table in a wheelchair all alone the only one sitting at the table now in that wheelchair she could never maneuver her way around that room and mingle with other people so she was stuck in a stationary position dependent on other people coming over and sitting down next to her but at least when I was there no one was doing that so because I had nothing else to do and because there was no one else at our table there for the moment I walked around and sat next to her her name was Nancy and she had MS I asked her every question I could think of and we engaged in conversation as best as I could initiate but there were still moments of awkward silence where I was racking my brain trying to think of something else to say or to ask I offered to get her some food but she refused no one else came over to greet her after about a half an hour we saw someone eating fruit and she commented that that looked tasty this time I insisted on getting up and getting her something to eat but by the time I got to where the food was they had packed it all up and put it away so I went into the kitchen and I begged the caterers to get some of the fruit out explain the situation and they were happy to do so when I returned back to the table with a big plate of fruit the friend Nancy had come with had returned and was chatting away with her Nancy was delighted to get the plate of fruit but I think it's safe to say that most of the people even the ones that knew Nancy when they were in high school went home that evening not only never greeting her but never even knowing she was there she had become invisible as a result of her MS afterward I thought a lot about Nancy I was very aware that Nancy was one of those invisible people but I felt so ill-equipped to really love her I kicked myself because I knew that I could have made much more of my time with her eventually I thought of a few meaningful things I could have said to her or more meaningful things I could have said to her for instance Nancy because of your experience you see things other people don't see you see things I don't see you have a lot to teach people like me what are some of the things you see now which you didn't see before your MS what are some of the things you wish people like me would realize hopefully that would have led to deeper conversations I'm very much a person who is in process when it comes to loving people I'm not who I should be but I'm also not who I used to be because Jesus is helping me the second point 
that we can get from this, besides that there are invisible people, is that Jesus sees the invisible people. To Jesus, no one is invisible. No person is a nobody. We see this in interactions with this blind man here. We see it elsewhere as well. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, remember that fateful day as he came out of the uh, um, temptation in the wilderness and he went to the synagogue and he was asked to, you know, read and speak on from the scriptures and he chose Isaiah 61 and he, which reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed. You see, Jesus came for the invisible people, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. You can also see this in the pattern of his ministry. Who did he love? He loved tax collectors, lepers, blind people, sick people, poor widows, children, sinful women. Think about the Samaritan woman he spent so much time with in John 4. She had three issues that made her invisible to an ordinary Jewish man. She was a woman... She was a Samaritan, and she was immoral. But Jesus saw her. She was amazed. Even the disciples that he chose were rather invisible people, uneducated and unimportant in their society. Jesus saw invisible people. He illustrated this in the description of the father of the prodigal son in that parable in Luke 15, who noticed his son when he was still far off. This shows us the way that Jesus looks and explains why he sees things the rest of us don't see. You know, tornadoes do some very strange things. Tornadoes can turn an entire house into rubble and leave a flower in a flower pot on the front step, untouched completely. Sometimes Jesus is like a tornado. He will shatter rocks but a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out Matthew 12:20 his grace runs downhill he goes toward the low ones not the ones who think they're high he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, Matthew 9, 12. 
This is the kind of people he's building into his church. By and large, his church is a church of nobodies. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. Generally, God chooses the weak, the poor, the despised, the unpopular. The divine economy sure is different from the economy of the world. Now why does God seem to prefer the least, the last, the lowest, and the lost? Why would God go scraping at the bottom of the barrel to collect the people for himself? Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1 to tell us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 29. So that all might know that he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Verse 30. So that when we boast, we boast not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Verse 31. God chooses the unimportant because his saving dealings with mankind are all based on the principle of grace. And he has determined that this be recognized so that no one boasts in their salvation or thinks that God's favor is a result of anything in us or anything we have done. This is why he actually calls us to become little people. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 1 Peter 5. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Now this is the opposite of what our flesh tends to do. We long to be recognized, but Jesus says no. Be meek, be humble, be small. The third point that comes from this, we have that there are invisible people, that Jesus sees the invisible people. The third thing is that Jesus wants to help us to see and care about invisible people. In John 9, Jesus saw this blind man. And then he got his disciples to see the blind man. And this is one of his goals for us as well. To teach us to see and love invisible people. Now there's nothing wrong with the concept of New Year's resolutions. But it seems to me that we ought to be asking ourselves... What do I think God wants to do in my life this year? What does God want to change in me? Perhaps one of the things is to learn to see 
and to love invisible people. Paul addresses this in Romans 12, 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Being Christ-like means noticing those who could easily go unnoticed. You can't love until you look. You can't love people until you see them. But noticing, of course, is not enough. We also have to care. We also have to see them with the eyes of Christ. And part of us, honestly, doesn't want to love. So we avoid looking. The Good Samaritan looked, but the priest and the Levite avoided looking. They walked on the other side of the road so they wouldn't have to look. If we're being honest with ourselves, I think we have to admit that Christians are often pretty good at ignoring the needs of our world around us. Many of us aren't really lovingly engaging in the lives of the people in our neighborhood, in our workplace, even in our family, extended families. I see it in myself and I see it in others. Christians can be very self-oriented. Do we really view others as beautifully created in God's image? As precious in the eyes of the Lord, as potentially friends in heaven? Our nature, I think, is to invisibilize those who are different from us. I've told you before the story of my oldest son's first day in college when I pointed out to him all the um, Hispanic workers who were all over the campus doing, emptying the trash and doing the garden and everything and all the students walking around and pointed out to him what two different worlds exist here and you'll never see these worlds interact. They both act like the other one's not even there. The key, of course, is to realize that we are invisible people whom Jesus saw and loved. He cared about us in spite of our unworthiness. And now he wants to use us as channels through which he might love others. Now, I would like to add an addendum to this sermon. And I would like to uh, address those who are newish to GPC, people who have been here, say, for five years or less. If you heard that there was a birthday party with over 200 people in attendance, what would you assume about the person whose birthday was being celebrated. It's not very often that we have knowledge of any birthday parties with 200 or more people in them. You probably would assume that it was the birthday of some very popular or some very talented person. Well, six years ago, 
over 200 people attended a 30th birthday party right here for Katie Wellington. I believe that that reflects the point that I'm making in the sermon today. I believe it is an honor to have Katie as a part of our congregation. Katie is Christ's precious little one. I think Katie might be the most important member of our church. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it should, there we go. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God often disguises his most precious treasures in a cloak of invisibility. If we're put off by things like blindness or MS or whatever, we will miss the treasure. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you took note of us when no one else did. You shed your grace upon us when we were unworthy and unlovable. And we thank you. And Lord, the song of our lives is the song of grace. And yet, Lord, as those who have been so greatly blessed by you, it's so easy for us to forget where we came from, 
and to elevate ourselves over others. We see this, Lord, in Romans 11, how the Gentiles, who were nothing, were grafted in, and the Jews were cut off, and yet then the Gentiles begin to exalt themselves and look down on the Jews. Father, it's just in us. It's our despicable human nature. Thank you that one day we'll be free of it. But in the meantime, dear Lord, please help us to be humble. Help us to be compassionate. Help us not to harden our hearts toward others who are different than us. And please, O Lord, may we be open channels to the love of Christ in the lives of others. And now, our Father, we thank you for the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper and remembering anew how you fed us when we were hungry. You gave us yourself the food that truly satisfies. Now, Lord, meet us here and renew our minds and our spirits and fill us with the love of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.